Teaching Channel Talks. I'm your host, Wendy Amato. As often as I can, I share conversations with experts about topics that matter in education. And if you've listened to my podcast, you know that I value inclusion. In this episode, let's explore making fitness accessible. It's my pleasure to welcome Brendan Elward. Brendan, welcome. Thanks for having me. You have a personal goal of creating a more inclusive fitness industry. Can you tell me about your career pathway? How do you get to that as a goal? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it dates back to when I was in high school, uh, when I started volunteering with Special Olympics and Best Buddies, organizations that I'm sure a lot of your audience members are familiar with uh, because of their presence in schools uh, as well as outside of schools and um, started in special education and um, I was adamant on being a special education teacher. Um, and then about halfway through university, I decided that I want to create a place where my special Olympic athletes could train alongside their peers. Um, so I spent a couple of years kind of coming up with the model uh, that has since become Unified Health and Performance, which is our facility here in Massachusetts. And, uh, we train people with and without disabilities and uh, we found a way to make it seamlessly uh, integrated where presence of a disability doesn't prevent anyone from accessing the gym. So. You emphasize providing space for intellectual and physical disabilities. To me, those are distinct populations. Am I misunderstanding? Um, no, not necessarily. Uh, and I think it comes back to just like a human-centered and individualized approach. Um, right before I was on this call, I was doing an eval with a, an individual about a spinal cord injury. Um, and we were just trying to come up with basically a menu of exercises he could conduct. And then later this afternoon, we'll be working with some clients with autism and Down syndrome and um, kind of treat everyone in the same way. And we have collegiate athletes, we have neurotypical adults and everyone who comes in, we basically conduct the needs assessments of what they want to work on in the same way that uh, you would figure out what a student needs to be successful, whether there's specific standards. Uh, we kind of have our informal standards uh, as it relates to fitness, depending on what their specific goal is. And then we just cater a program to that. And there's aspects of universal design. Uh, so maybe if someone has an intellectual disability, uh, we're going to communicate in a different way. Or if they have a physical disability, the environment might have to be structured in a different way. Um, but since we kind of follow that like individualized, uh, personalized programming, uh, the presence of a disability just becomes like another factor to consider in the same way that maybe one of my high schoolers is training for a specific sport. Uh, maybe one of my wheelchair users just training to be able to ambulate better or transfer out of their chairs. What you're describing sounds exactly like good teaching, where we think about the unique needs of each learner in front of us. And in this case, we're talking about fitness. Can we explore a little bit some of the essential considerations for a facility? Uh, how, what recommendations would you make for someone who gets to make those decisions? Yeah, and I think the, the physical landscape is obviously the first barrier. So if someone can't access the gym physically, then they can't uh, exist within the community. So making sure that you're adhering to ADA standards. But sometimes I think that almost becomes overwhelming for people that maybe don't have the background within special education or accessibility, and they're not quite sure where to start. Um, and I think there's sometimes an assumption, like if I claim that I'm inclusive or if I claim that I'm going to be accessible, it opens you up to criticism when inevitably you're not, or when maybe someone 
uh, wants to be served in a specific way that you're not familiar with. So I think sometimes that prevents people from starting. So when I'm working with other health and fitness professionals and trying to help them be more inclusive and accessible, I'm almost just giving them graces to uh, like make mistakes, learn on the fly. Um, you can't really figure out how to serve everyone until you've served one person. Uh, so we kind of talk about like incremental universal design. So maybe you start by making sure the building's accessible and then you can transition into making sure your programming is accessible. Um, yeah, it's, it's a process. Um, we tend to say that inclusion is not necessarily a destination, but just uh, something that you, you work on every day to provide the support. So yeah, it's a good business practice. You're the owner of Unified Health and Performance and the founder of Adaptex. Tell me about those. Are they the same thing? Yeah, yeah. So Unified uh, is a for-profit strength and conditioning facility that uh, we started in 2016. Uh, so we're, um, July 4th will be seven years. And then Adaptex, um, I came up with the concept about four years ago. Uh, and initially it just started as a series of presentations for my staff, uh, just to kind of bring them up to speed on working with various disabilities. Um, and then it just kind of kept growing. So it became a robust enough curriculum that uh, we wanted to share it with other people. So Adaptex is now a 501c3 uh, nonprofit, uh, mostly because my incentives with Adaptex is just to reach as many people as possible. So um, there aren't really any financial incentives personally. Um, fortunate that my gym uh, does well enough that that's kind of like my day job. And then Adaptex is like my passion project where I get to teach other health and fitness professionals and university students um, are, I guess, view towards accessibility and inclusion. Uh, so that is, uh, we also have a little bit of a research space here. So we do projects with a few local universities, uh, specifically on like cerebral palsy and Down syndrome. Um, and yeah, so Adaptex is kind of an educational and resource uh, research-based organization. And then Unified is our, our fitness center. I think of Adaptex as your curriculum and as your programs, like everything except being the location. And I wonder what lessons you've learned from developing that curriculum and program. Yeah, I think um, it's, it's been a learning experience, always, always revising, always trying to add to it. Um, delivering it asynchronously and remotely has been something uh, that's been I wouldn't say a, a struggle, but there's certainly specific challenges that come about with um, with remote learning. So figuring out how to make it more engaging. And it was a little disjointed initially, because like I mentioned, it started as a series of individual presentations, and then we had to make it more cohesive as a curriculum. And from there, making it more engaging and interactive. We'll have students on West Coast time and East Coast time, and. Uh, recently, we've been working with some professionals in New Zealand, and so like all the different time zones uh, obviously presents a challenge to getting people all on a call at the same time. So, um, but from a education standpoint, like what I enjoy doing, um, so I love teaching and I love the opportunity to uh, maybe expose, like we like working at the universities because it's kind of exposing people before they enter the fields of fitness or personal training or strength and conditioning to these concepts that they can hopefully then kind of take that lens into whatever facility they end at. Um, and yeah, we hope that Adaptex uses us to people that maybe want to open more facilities like ours 
you are involved in some very robust research projects. Can you share a little bit about maybe one or two of your favorites? Uh, yeah, I think um, robust is, is a kind way to put it. I think the literature on adaptive fitness, if you want to call it that, just in terms of fitness, health and fitness for people with disabilities, uh, we can just refer to it as adaptive fitness. Um, the, the literature is relatively scarce, especially when it comes to um, more robust projects. And there's some specific barriers like getting individuals with Down syndrome to travel to a site or a study a couple times a week for 12 weeks or 16 weeks can be tough. So we're kind of fortunate where since we already have these athletes already coming to our facility, uh, we're able to conduct some projects on site here. Uh, so we work with a few local universities uh, for like the IRB process then our nonprofit, our director of research is faculty uh, at one of the universities as well. So he helps me with the protocols. Um, but big thing we're working on is just like uh, projects that would have a higher like ROI. So things not necessarily demonstrating that like, it's easy to put up like a mechanistic study and say that like fitness is good for people with Down syndrome. It improves their muscle mass like that's probably pretty obvious like if anyone engages in, in a good fitness program they're going to see those things improve what we're trying to work on is like the larger scale like macro products like why aren't gyms accessible uh, what do they need to be accessible so uh, we have a couple capstone groups and those capstone groups are physical therapy students from these universities and they have to create uh, they have to complete a doctoral capstone project so we have one that's working on building out like an accessibility audit. Uh, so looking at like the physical footprint, the digital footprint, uh, the cognitive, like the way that programming's delivered and they're kind of coming up with hopefully what will become like a checklist that gyms can use uh, to audit their environment and audit their programming. Uh, so yeah, we're just kind of, I mean, we have some projects that are on like cerebral palsy and different training strategies for that population and different ways of assessing lower body strength for wheelchair users and things like that. But those are things that I'm just kind of interested in uh, because I want to kind of do the, the best that we can in terms of a programming standpoint. But um, we're also looking at the larger scale things of how to make the industry more accessible. I wonder if you can help me think about some of the uh, related stakeholders around a student who may benefit from some uh, adaptive physical education. How can families help to make sure that the atmosphere or the instruction is right for their children? Yeah. Well, we know from um, Nora Shields' research, she's out of um, Australia and she does a lot of the barriers and facilitators for physical activity for people with disabilities. And we know that uh, parental support and uh, family involvement tends to be a significant facilitator to um, helping people become more physically active, especially those with disabilities. So um, just convincing uh, their parents, their caregivers, their family members of the importance of physical activity um, can be a great first step, creating opportunities for them to do so together um, to be an opportunity as well. Um, but yeah, talking to the stakeholders, I guess I'm fortunate in that I was already strongly immersed within my community through Special Olympics and I was running all the Special Olympic programs for our area. So the parents and have already trusted me as a coach. And then that kind of seamlessly just transitioned into a fitness environment, a sport environment. Um, so I think sometimes finding people who are uh, strongly immersed within their community, whether it's Special Olympics or 
for other programs that support people with disabilities can be a great way um, to kind of introduce them to the fitness environment, reaching out to local disability service agencies um, and asking if they're interested in having a weekly class or a bi-weekly class um, and just getting more people involved with physical activities. There's no shortage of evidence that people with disabilities aren't as active as their peers. Um, so finding ways to, and that's, I think, sometimes one of my uh, gripe is too strong of a word, but sometimes um, gyms will offer like eight week programs for people with disabilities. And that's a great stepping stone. But it's, it's like if you came to me with a specific goal, like I want to run a marathon, I would never say like, okay, give me four weeks and then you can take the next few months off and then you can run your race. Like there needs to be opportunities for people to be active year round. Um, so like if you're going to offer an eight week program, why can't you just find a way to embed it within your ethos and within like your regular systems? So, um, yeah, it's a good first step, uh, but we want to kind of see it be a more great. regular. I'm grateful to hear you recommending that people connect with agencies and established leaders uh, and, and tap into what is already available. There are, are too many people in all kinds of roles in education that try to go at it alone. And it just is not effective. We can't serve our students if we're trying to do things in a vacuum. And so I really appreciate that piece of advice in particular. There are, there are networks and if it's not right in your town, it may be in the next town over and it will be great to, to let the neighboring effect expand so that more people can get what they need. Like I mentioned before, a lot of gyms aren't doing this. So we have we have clients uh, with disabilities who travel 30, 35 minutes to the gym, whereas you and I would likely find a gym that's most logistically convenient that might only be five or 10 minutes from our houses. Uh, their opportunities might not be uh, as thorough and as uh, plentiful. So just um, connecting with organizations kind of all around your area. And while we want to get to a point where people with and without disabilities kind of seamlessly coexist, sometimes a good first step is just to offer a program or all like for only people with disabilities and get them into the gym, get them comfortable. Then you can figure out like what supports they need uh, and how they can exist within uh, like all your clientele in the same way that like someone came to me after having knee surgery and wouldn't just throw them into a group class just so they could be with their same age peers. We would want to make sure they have the prerequisite skills. So, um, so sometimes there is like an incremental step towards getting someone with a disability fully immersed within uh, their regular gym community, uh, but they do have to possess the prerequisite skills to function safely um, in the same way that their non-disabled peers would as well. So. I may be too teachery, but I can also imagine that people may appreciate being asked what they need. And so invite people in, start somewhere and open conversation, get a dialogue going to figure out what the next step is together. That's another big barrier for, for new fitness professionals is like maybe they don't have any exposure to working with disabilities before and they express that they're worried about saying something incorrect or doing something incorrect. And we found that if you just have genuine conversations and you demonstrate that you care about the individual's best interest, then they're, they're going to give you the grace to make mistakes or do something wrong and just kind of figure it out. It's a lot of trial and error working with them. Um, so I think um, just having a willingness to treat each individual like uh, like a, a person is, is uh, a good first step, but it's something that doesn't come innately to everyone's.
I wanted to ask, do you have thoughts about the role that technology can play in making fitness more accessible and inclusive for people with intellectual or physical disabilities or both? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's something that we don't do a ton of currently, um, but it's something that we're interested in figuring out. So we had, we hosted a conference a couple weeks ago and Easter Seals was one of the vendors and uh, she came with some different iPad um, apps and stuff that we could use to kind of build out workouts uh, using like AAC devices and uh, alternative methods of communication. So uh, I think that can definitely be because it's like if if a student is comfortable from my time in special education, a lot of things revolved around uh, iPads, and stuff like that. So if the students are already comfortable navigating those devices, uh, it seems like it would be seamless to have them use that in the gym as well. Uh, so building out like visual depictions of the workout. So maybe instead of a sheet that goes through uh, your warm up exercises, your lower body exercises, your upper body exercises, having pictures of them being performed could be really useful for some some athletes. If we want to think of like, how can we get someone independently working out? And that's not always going to be the end goal. But if at least if you have that like thought exercise, like how could this athlete with autism go through their workout completely independently without my support? Uh, and you would likely maybe need some, some visual depictions and maybe timers, uh, maybe counting repetitions isn't going to be a strength for the athlete. So maybe working off of timers instead. Uh, so just kind of, that goes back to what you said before, where like, it takes like collaborating with other professionals. So if you're able to talk to their special education teacher, see what they use in school, uh, see what's been successful, they've likely already tried all these things. So uh, there's no point in reinventing the wheel if it's already, they already have a system that's effective. So I think technology can be um, really well uh, suited to a, a fitness environment as well. Brendan, I'd like for you to imagine that I've brought some students to your gym and uh, I, I'd love to know what message you want them to hear from you. Yeah, first, I mean, first session is always going to be a little exploratory in nature, figuring out what they're drawn to, what they're interested in, because um, then you can kind of leverage some of those motivations uh, to construct a workout that is the best. Uh, and a workout's only as good as it can be adhered to. So if the client's not enjoying the workouts, if they're not looking forward to their sessions, then the effort's gonna be compromised and the consistency isn't gonna be there. So um, while we might know what's best for the individual, there has to be some give and take. Um, and if we know what exercises they like, what exercises they don't like, then maybe we can structure it in a way that do X, Y, Z, and you can then do that exercise you prefer, like get these two things done and then you can take a break here. Uh, so just kind of structuring it in a similar way. To, I used to work as like an ABA tech and it was kind of in that same way. Like you have your task lists, you have your reward and that systems of uh, like reinforcement with uh, rewards is pretty common um, within special education, at least in my experience. So you can do you can kind of informally do it in the same way um, in a gym, but you need to know about the individual. So you bring a group of students to me, I'm gonna have, have my template of what I wanna try out, uh, but there's gonna be some flexibility in that. Um, we're gonna wanna find out how they learn most effectively. So if I'm standing there in a circle and I'm giving verbal instruction and I notice that half the class isn't even paying attention, then I'm gonna to have to try a different way. So maybe it's demonstrating exercises. 
uh, or maybe it's breaking up into small groups or uh, working one-to-one -one with someone, uh, just figuring out what learning style um, they need, like how they learn most effectively, and then what they're drawn to as well. So we kind of use those preferences uh, as reinforcement to get better effort. I like hearing that you want to listen for motivations instead of feeling that you're going to motivate somebody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work that way in, in any, uh, <laughs> any. Not, not in fitness either. If you like, <laughs> I think good, good adaptive fitness is just applying like all different domains. It's applying special education. It's applying physiology and anatomy. It's applying psychology. It's, uh, you need to know how to elicit behavior change. Uh, to get someone who's never worked out before into a, a fitness routine. So um, you have to be a great listener and a great communicator. And that's where I think kind of having that education background, uh, special education background specifically, uh, gave me a huge uh, leg up. I, I get interns, uh, like exercise science interns from a couple local universities. And typically the best ones are always the best people, uh, like people persons, person people. Uh, but uh, they're typically the best, like people persons where they're able to communicate with because uh, I can easily teach them how to like coach the different exercises but sometimes it's harder to teach someone how to communicate well and how to be personable so I think those are those are the foundations if I was looking for like a really good fitness professional I would look for a really good communicator. There's no question in my mind why you are the right person to be as effective as you are in creating a more inclusive fitness industry. And I'm appreciative of getting to share a conversation with you. Brendan Aylward, thank you for being my guest. And to fellow educators, thank you for listening. If you'd like to explore the topics that we discussed today, please check out the show notes at teachingchannel.com slash podcast. Be sure to subscribe on whatever listening app you use. It will help others to find us. I'll see you again soon for another episode. Thanks for listening.